0: What would you think if I called you different? Yes, thank you. We have a couple of thank yous. So, so if I was to say, Jonathan, man, you're just really different. <laughs> Compliment or, or not? It depends on the context. It's what? <laughs> it depends on the context. There are no straight answers this morning. Okay, so it depends on the context, a dig in the back. Okay, why is it a dig in the back? Because there's something else that follows it. Let me tell you how you're different. I remember in college, I was over at a friend's house one time, and their their dad had just painted their door. And it was a a really odd shade of green. You know, greens, you can have really good shades of greens, and then you can have really sickly shades of green. (laughs) And this was more on the sickly side. And the dad said, so what do you think of the door? Well, I didn't use different. I said, oh, it's interesting. <laughs> and for some reason, he didn't take that as a compliment. And, and for years, whenever I'd see him, he goes, oh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I'm like, what was I supposed to say? Because we think of sometimes of being interesting or being different. Those can be bad things or they can be good things, depending on context, depending on how we're speaking of it it's interesting because I've I've watched a number of generations now that try to be different. And I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, each generation tries to be different in their own way, unique. And what's really fascinating to me is they want to be different altogether the same. And so I'm like, you're you're not that different. (laughs) Because I think at our core, at our core, I think we, we want to be like someone else. We want to be in a group where there's some identity. And and maybe that's different for, for guys and girls. And girls, you go to a, an event, right? And you're hoping no one's wearing the same thing. Guys, we go to an event and we're hoping somebody's wearing the same thing. Because that means we got it right. We, we didn't, you know, we, semi-formal, formal, you know, business casual. I don't know. But if I see another guy dressed like I am, I'm like, yes. I don't stand out. We come to 1 Corinthians and Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 1-9 through is be different. You are different. Because of Christ, you're different. And the Corinthian church was struggling because they weren't different. And as we talked about last week, the city was still very much part of the church instead of the church just being in the city and being a light to the city. Now last week I know that we we didn't get to see some of the pictures. A few of you stayed later and you got your own little slideshow, which was sort of fun. But I, I wanted to show some of the pictures just to remind ourselves of Corinth, and I'll try not to press the wrong button this time. Again, Corinth is here on this Isthmus, which is a land bridge between two um, land masses. And if you remember, it was a port town. And, and port towns have a reputation of being a little seedy, and this was a two-port town. So it was double the sin and, and everything else. That was an inscription with Caesar on it. And this is a closer up picture, where you can see Corinth here, and you see the the two ports, actually, of Centria and Lycaeum. And those were on both sides, but that's all really the area of of Corinth. Now, this is an interesting um, thing that they've dug up. This is the road between the two bays. And so on this road is where they would take the logs and put the platforms and the ships on the platforms, at least the smaller ones, and they'd portage them across to the bay on the other side, instead of going the 250 miles around. And so they've actually found these things, which is just a lot of fun. This is a modern day picture of Corinth, and I love this one because you can see the bay here, and you can see the bay here, and you see the canal that was um, begun and finished in the late 1800s. And so now there's a canal there, although In today's terms, it's very small, and so modern ships can't get under these bridges and it's not deep enough. But you can really get a picture of what this area looked like there, so I appreciate that picture. We get into some of the archaeological digs, and I mentioned that Corinth had many religions, right? And in fact, a whole number of temples, somewhere around 15 temples. This is the Acrocorinth. It's the, the mountain that sort of overlooked the city. And in the top of here was the temple to Aphrodite, the love goddess. And so that's, um, she had the place of prominence. She was the largest deity worshipped in the area. And that was the one that had, at some points in history, up to a thousand temple prostitutes that would come into town and and ply their trade and their religion in that way. What I liked about this picture is this is the remains of the the temple to Apollo, And He was the love god of the males. And so you sort of got the picture of of both of those there. This is some more excavations of Corinth with the Acrocorinth in the background. And so you get a picture of just what some of they were dealing with in this city. This particular picture, and just picture all of last week's information in these pictures. This is from the top of the Acrocorinth where the Temple to Aphrodite was, overlooking one of the bays, and down here overlooking Corinth. And so you had a bird's eye view, um, but the height there gave it a, a place of prominence, a place of priority. Here's another view from the top of the Acrocorinth. So that's a little bit of the pictures you missed last week, um, but it gives us a reminder of what the city was like. And if you remember some of the things that the church was dealing with because they had taken on some of the aspects of the city and they they were struggling in that area but some of the things they were struggling with was factions and and divisions within the church jealousy of one another because they were all about status and and prestige they were struggling with immorality because the city the immorality of the city was just normal to them they were struggling with legal disputes and taking each other to court and paul's like that's not how you deal with things as as believers Um, They were struggling with immaturity, with what to do with the the festivals to the pagan gods and what happens if another guy in the church believes something different than I do and we we both believe that we're we're walking with God as we practice this. They were dealing with marriage issues and people taking some of the um, culture of the time and trying to apply it to their marriage and to the detriment of their spouse. They were dealing with worship issues. Improper use of spiritual gifts, um, abusing the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate today and treating it as an opportunity for division, coming to the Lord's Supper with hearts that weren't right with God because it was just another pagan feast to them. And so we have this really discouraging view of the church that doesn't sound real uplifting and But for us, we want to look through the the letter to the church at Corinth and say, okay, what does Paul teach and what does God teach through Paul about how to live godly in this ungodly world? But what's interesting is today we start with verses 1 through 9, and if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 9, I just want to start by reading these nine verses and letting you feel the, the dissonance between these verses and what we know about the church and the rest of the book. Because they're very, very different. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-9. through nine. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's your thoughts as you hear those, those nine verses? You can respond. What's the tone? What was that? Unity? Unity? Encouraging. I read, I, I read these nine verses and I'm like, that's not the church at Corinth. How can he be saying that? I know what's in the rest of the book. I read ahead. And, and this just doesn't sound like the church at Corinth. Man, if it's me and I'm writing them and trying to address some of the sin that is in this church, we just get right to it. And we're going to deal with some things and we're going to chastise and we're going to purify God's church. But that's not where Paul starts under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He starts with encouragement, he starts with thanksgiving. And we can learn much from Paul's wisdom here as he's training and discipling and instructing others. He starts with an encouraging word. He starts by building them up. But more importantly, he's bringing them back to the only foundation that can solve their problems. Sometimes when we just jump in and and deal with problems and say, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you should do this, it can just be prescriptive and we're just dealing with symptoms. Paul here at the beginning goes to the root cause and to the root help and says, let's talk about Christ. If you notice, throughout this passage, Christ or Christ Jesus is in almost every verse. Over and over and over. And so Paul here is drawing them back at the beginning of his instruction, at the beginning of some tough, tough instruction to the church. He's drawing them back to who Christ is and who they are in Christ. And the message is you're different because of Christ. Whenever you look at a a book that Paul has written, you want to pay careful attention to the opening of it. And sometimes we get to these opening verses and we just sort of skim by them. Okay, it's Paul to the church at Corinth. That's really cool. And and, you know, it just seems almost like routine. Like this is just the structure of how they wrote letters. And it was to some degree... But one of the things you always want to look at with Paul's writings is what's different. What is different from this intro to to the church at Corinth than Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or some of those? Because Paul doesn't waste his words in his openings. And one of the things that he often does, which is sort of fun to look at the openings, is he usually gives us a preview of where he's going in the book. He, he right from the start, previews the issues that he wants to deal with. And so while this is a standard greeting, we want to be looking for what is he previewing? What is he trying to tell them? And we start with verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And a few of his books mention that he's an apostle, but usually it's the ones where he's very intentional about sharing his qualifications to be a messenger of God to them at the church of Corinth and we see it more in second Corinthians than first Corinthians but in chapter 9 we'll see a little bit of it there appears to be a, a discussion of whether Paul was even qualified to address the church is he really an apostle is he really that good of an apostle and so here Paul starts with saying by the will of God I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus and he's not tooting his own horn and he's not trying to you know puff himself up because he doesn't say by my doing I'm I'm an apostle but he's referring them back to his credentials and that they are God's will and his authority. See, so many times when when something has to be addressed in a home or in a church, the response of someone that's struggling, especially with self-centeredness, is, well, you don't have authority over me. What right do you have to say that? I am my own authority. You know, I, I can remember hearing kids uh, back before I had kids. And parents would say, yeah, they said, you're not the boss of me when I told them something. And i just shake my head. So my kids will never say that. <laughs> and every one of my kids at some point has said, that. I don't know where they get it. We don't use words like that. You're not the boss of me. And every one of them has at one point come up, well, you're not the boss of me. Well, let's talk. <laughs> and and we, we, we have a time of correction and um, teaching there but our nature is we don't like someone to exercise authority over us, right? Especially when we're being reprimanded. And so Paul starts by sharing that his authority is of God. The word for apostle there means sent one. Sent by God with God's message or God's messenger. And so Paul is basically saying, this isn't from me, guys. This is from God. Listen. Listen. Listen up and pay attention and change. One other thought that I I love about this, and this is a side note, we'll bunny trail a few times today. When I think of Paul's past and that he was a persecutor of Christians, we we prayed for the persecuted church this morning, he killed Christians, I can think, he was not worthy to be an apostle. This man was an evil man being used by Satan. But God called him to be an apostle and a messenger of God. And I think about that, because if God can call Paul and change his life and use him for the kingdom in the mighty ways that he did, then none of us are excluded. As long as we're open to God's leading, open to God's call, we're never beyond being used by God. So Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, and we talked about that last week. I think it's the same guy as Acts 18:17. Um, could be, we don't know that for sure, but it, it sure seems like it fits a lot of the, the details. But again, what's interesting in, in many of Paul's books, other than a handful, he mentions another guy as, as helping him write it. And it's it's again an example of Paul doing ministry with people. He didn't do ministry alone, but he always did it as a partnership and bringing others along. And this is just another example of that. So I love the example of Paul as we study through this. But okay, enough with the bunny trail. Let's get back to to this text. Because in chapter 2, he gets down to it. We're going to look at four different ways that who Christ is and what he has done impacts the church and prepares us to, to godly living in an ungodly world. So the first thing that we see is in, in verse two. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The first place Paul takes them is to remember and takes us is that we need to remember who we are. Remember who we are, sanctified, different from the world's saints because of Christ Jesus. We're sanctified, different from the world's saints, because of Christ Jesus. And if you look at some of the phrases there, he starts, to the church of God. And right away, he's he's reminding them of their identity. It's not their church. It's God's church. We are his possession. He has paid the price to bring us into the church as his sons and daughters. Right from the start, that should have stopped some of the divisions. They were thinking it was the church of Paul and the church of Apollos and the church of Cephas. And Paul says, No, this is the church of God. It just happens to be located in Corinth. But then he, he, he gives a powerful testimony of their identity to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And that word for sanctified is from Hagias, which means holy or set apart. And he's saying, You are set apart for Christ Jesus. Now, he's talking to a church with, that's a mess with all kinds of problems, but because they are believers, he said, your identity is different. You need to stop thinking of yourselves as Corinthians and start thinking of yourselves as saints. We, we talked about this a little bit when we studied Philippians a number of years ago. But what Paul is saying is, you're saints. You know, it bugs me sometimes when, when I hear us dwelling on this idea that we're sinners. And before you hang me for heresy, let me explain. We are sinners, but that's not the end of the story. When we stop there, we're not taking advantage of an opportunity to share what Christ has done. I was a sinner. I still sin. I was a sinner, but that's not my identity anymore. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin, because I have repented and given my life to Him, in in God's eyes, I am now a saint You are a saint. And and the the terminology for saints can get in the way here because we think of saints as old dead people that were really spiritual. Every person in this room who is a believer is defined as a saint by God. Sanctified one set apart for his work. And and that identity is so important as a foundation if we're to stand for godly living in an ungodly world. We are different in all the right ways. And so he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, we can be set apart for a lot of things. You can be sanctified to be a good baseball player or sanctified to the... No, this is sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart for the work of God as holy ones. He goes on to say, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that second word, called to be saints, it's the same as sanctified, same root. And there's, there's a, a couple of things that he's reminding them of, and I think I put four different observations there. The first is that they were called to be holy in the middle of a very ungodly city. They were called to be holy in the middle of a very ungodly city. And that has to do with that word of being set apart to be holy for God. And in fact, sanctified is in in the perfect tense, we call it, which means it's a past action that has ongoing effect. This is done. It's a done deal that we are sanctified saints. That happened when we accepted Christ and ultimately when he died on the cross and took our sins. They would have seen this as the Jews would have seen this as well as a reference to. Some of the Old Testament teaching about holiness, in Leviticus 19:2 in the, the Septuagint uses the same Greek word. In the, in the Hebrew it's different. but in Leviticus 19:2 it says, "Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, "You shall be holy, for I am, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of us here is called to be different, called to be holy." Yes, we're in the process of sanctification. We're growing more Christ like every day, hopefully. But you're holy. And like, like, like I've said before, we have St. Stephen here, and St. Kristen, St. Jonathan, and St. Richard. And that changes how we view ourselves in this world. We've got to be thinking of things differently. You sort of saw this at Halloween. I don't know if you watched kids going around. Um, I saw my my little nephew. One of them was in a Captain America suit and and with all those fake muscles. I hope they were fake. Um, And he put on that suit and I got to tell you, he became Captain America. Right? Those of you with kids, he's strutting around with a shield. Uh, Just totally different. We're walking along and there's another kid with Captain America. That seemed to be a popular one this year. And, there's, and, and they're, they're both just like, yeah, I'm Captain America. Their identity, even though it was pretend, even though they put it on, their identity affected their actions. Church, our identity affects our actions. If we think of ourselves as... As sinners, as worldly, and just barely scraping by and hoping to be spiritual somehow, then we're going to fall into sin. But if we think of ourselves and know that we are sanctified saints called to be different, that changes how we act. It's a key, key concept in in this book. A couple of other observations they were saints by God's call and Christ's work, not their own says the church of God, it's his possession, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called by God, together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is making a point there against their independent self-centeredness. You didn't do this. You're a saint, but not by anything you've done. It was Christ Jesus that paid the price. And in fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, he's going to bring that up again. And in chapter 7, you were bought with a price. And so he's doing two things, I think, with that. He's combating their pride and self-centeredness. You didn't earn this. But he's also communicating worth. If I earn something myself, is that the same as the, the God of the universe that created all things paying for it? No, I'm nothing. There's no worth there. That makes sense? And so, by God paying the price with His own, the blood of His Son, dying on the cross, that communicates far more worth and far more importance to this identity than if I did it myself. Jesus called you out to be holy, but Jesus paid the price for that to happen. And that gives us worth and value. I love the story of a young man who had his eye on this girl wanted to marry this girl, and this is in a a different time and place, because at that point you traded cows for a wife. And the going rate for a wife was about three cows. So he goes to the dad and says, I'd like to marry your daughter, but I don't have any cows yet, so if you could just sort of hold off, giving her to anyone else until I I earn enough cows. And the dad said, well, you know, I, I really need to marry her off, so I'll give her to you for one cow. And the guy said, no. No, I'm going to earn, earn the right number of cows. A year or two later, he came back with seven cows. And brought seven cows in to the dad. And the dad said, no, I, I'll, I'll take one for her. I still haven't married her off. And the guy said, no, I'm giving you seven, because she's a seven-cow woman. And, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. He was... <laughs> Don't quote me on just that. What was he doing? He was communicating worth by the price he was willing to pay. Do you think that made a difference to that wife? Absolutely. He thinks of me not as a one cow or even a three cow. He thinks of me as worth two times, three times what the going rate is. That will change how she acts. That will change their relationship. Well what Paul is doing here is you didn't buy yourself. You didn't save yourself. You didn't have a part in it because that's just the going rate. That's worthless. God Almighty shed His blood for you. We are blood of Jesus Christ Christians. And that is part of our identity that Paul is trying to get across to help them have a foundation for godly living. Isn't Isn't that neat to think of that way? That we are worth that much to God. That he would save us. That he would pursue us while we were still sinners. I'm amazed at his salvation. Two other observations. Paul was reminding them of the equality of believers. The equality of believers. Remember they were all about status. And depending on which parties you threw and how much money you gave, how many statues you put up, you could earn different status levels. So at the end of 2, and he's fitting this all into a couple sentences here, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All believers are saints. You don't have a special identity. You have an identity that is the same as every believer, and it is incredible but you can't put yourself above someone else. There's no special saintliness. You can't become more spiritual so you get to be a saint and someone else can't be. It's the work of God. In a very similar concept, but but a different direction in D, Paul was reminding them of the unity of believers. So not only are they equal, but they're to be united. And you see that in that last sentence, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's just a subtle reminder saying we serve the same God. It's going to come up in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 again. It's going to come up in 1 through 4, actually, too, on divisions. All believers serve the same God. We are equal, but we're united. And so right from the start, Paul says, remember who you are. You're sanctified, different from the world's saints. That's your identity. That's your Captain America suit. Act like it. It's interesting. Is this how they were acting? No. But this is still who they were. As believers, we blow it sometimes. We sin. We defy God Almighty. But that doesn't take away the fact that we are sons and daughters of the King. It has to be dealt with. It's serious. It's serious. But our identity is still secure. My son may sin. My son may look at me and say, no. But he is still my son. We deal with it. We correct it. And we restore that relationship. But he will always be my son. And Paul is reaffirming their status, who they are. They're set apart by God, for God. And that's where he starts verse 3 grace to you taking a common greek greeting of, of um, and, and adding a, a christian flavor to it of god's grace to you and peace which would be a take on shalom and the hebrew greeting grace it to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ and then in verses four through nine he expands this idea of being sanctified holy different saints And and this is a section where he gives thanks for the people. Even though they have their problems, he finds something to be thankful for. And he starts there and uses that as his foundation. But in verse 4, we see the second point of what Christ has done in their lives, what Christ has done in our lives. We have been given the priceless gift of grace in Christ Jesus. We have been given the priceless gift of grace in Christ Jesus. And it's just... It's it's so valuable to remind ourselves of that all the time. To to remind ourselves that God is the one that saved us, and grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Nothing I can do can earn Christ's love, which takes the, the pressure off. I don't have to hope that today I live good enough to be saved or to earn God's favor. It's unmerited. I can't do that anyway. And Paul, then, Paul in verse 4 is saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Again, to the Corinthian church, this was an important concept. You didn't make your way to the top on this issue. You didn't step on other people's faces to get up the ladder. This was completely undeserved and given to you by God. And I love Being reminded of that. We sing Amazing Grace in our home all the time. It's one of my kids' favorite songs, and they have about three different versions that they like that they rotate between. But the words are the same Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That's our gift from Jesus Christ. And so Paul is reminding them you're called out by Christ, you've been given a priceless gift of grace. And this is so important again to think of godly living in an ungodly world because he's reminding themselves the depth of the gift, which hopefully will be motivation to not drag that gift through the mud of the world. When we remember how incredible God's grace is, we don't want to defy it. We don't want to stain it. Imagine with me for a moment, Christmas is coming soon. I don't know how many days, but it feels like five. I mean, it just—it's—it's it's rushing on. And imagine if you found the perfect gift for, for a couple in the church, and you found a new house that you wanted to give them. Some of you are like, "That'd be cool." <laughs> and and you find this incredible house—six bedrooms, four bath—and it has tile and granite countertops and marble everywhere, and it is just beautiful and gorgeous. And Christmas morning, you pick a couple in the church and you give it to them. What are you hoping their response will be? Joy, Joy right? Oh, thanks. No, no, you, no, you're like, ah, house! This is incredible! Now imagine if you go back two or three months later and you go visit the house and you pull up to the curb and you are shocked because you see paintball stains all over the house and broken windows. And you go inside, and the inside is just covered with paintball. And they say, you know, we really love the gift you gave us. It has been a great paintball arena for us. And you know that they're still living in their one-bedroom apartment. How would you feel? It's sort of an absurd example, isn't it? But is it more absurd than God giving us grace of eternal life and of salvation, of changing our lives, of calling us to be different, and then we just walk through the mud with that and stay in the world and stay in sin. That's far worse than desecrating a house that was given to us. So Paul reminds them to be grateful for this grace. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. Paul's not necessarily giving thanks for them, but for what God is doing in them. If we want to live godly lives, we need to keep in mind God's grace and the power of God's grace. We go on in verses 5-7. through And point number 3 there is, Through Jesus we are abundantly given everything we need to be different. Through Jesus we are abundantly given everything we need to be different. Verse five starts, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. What an incredible statement right from the start. In every way, and the word there is just simply all. In all things, and some of the different versions translate it that way, or in everything. In every way you're enriched by him. And that's the first phrase there. And the word for enriched is really ironic, and and Paul does this. It, It means to be made rich, to be made wealthy. Remember Corinth? What was it all about? Moving up, getting wealth, becoming rich, being a self made man. And Paul said, In every way, God has already made you rich. In Him, in Christ. This is a gift of Christ to us. And this this whole introduction is about God's incredible gifts to us through Christ. Jesus touches all of life. He makes us abundantly rich in all of life. And in this context, he's giving us the ability to live holy, sanctified lives in every area by what he's given us. This is the bottomless cup of Starbucks for those of you that like Starbucks. It just keeps giving joy and giving joy and giving joy. If you don't like Starbucks, sorry. And then he goes and gives a little bit more specifics. The second half of verse 5 is really a a separate phrase and he's defining a a couple of of areas. And so he's really saying you're rich in every way and especially in speech and knowledge. In speech and knowledge. And those are two of the things that they valued in Corinth. Their their speech, being good um, orators and being able to discourse about things. Knowledge, the intellectual side of the town. And so Paul is saying... You've, you've already been giving all, given all that you need in those areas. You don't need to chase the world. You don't need to, to be part of what the city is doing on these things. And this is a little bit of, of a taste of what's coming in the book too because the issues of gifts were around speech and knowledge. Abuse of tongues. Abuse of prophecy. Um, knowledge holding things against each other for what you could and couldn't do. And so Paul's reminding them, those are good gifts. They're given by God. You're just misusing them. He goes on in verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And he's talking about that the giving of these spiritual gifts from Jesus that, that He has richly given us was proof that Paul's message was true. Was proof that Jesus is who He says He is and that following Him brings salvation. In verse 7, he goes on and talks a little more specifically about gifts. That's how we know that he's thinking of spiritual gifts here. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing you or I lack to living a godly life. Isn't that that encouraging? God God calls us through Jesus to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be different. He gives us the grace that we don't have to do it on our own. And now he's saying, and I've given you everything you need to be different, to live sanctified, holy lives. And he expands this thought in seven so that you are not lacking in any gift to be thinking of the church. You know, in English, you can be plural or singular, right? I can say, Phil, you did such and such. And that's singular. Or I can say, you went to Taco Bell last week, which half of you did. The place was awesome. In the south, what would they say? How do they differentiate? Y'all, y'all right? This is y'all. <laughs> so in verse 7, so that you all are not lacking in any gift. He's not saying that each believer has every gift. Ha and I don't need anyone else. He'll deal with that. But he's saying you all as a church Have everything you need to live godly in an ungodly world. This is such an incredible statement of of giftedness to His church, to the individual, that we are blessed, that we are rich, that we don't need to chase the world to fill our gaps. Because God already has if we would just wake up and notice. Through Jesus, we are abundantly given everything we need to be different. Praise God. And then verses 7-9, through Paul moves to thinking about the future. So point number four is through Jesus we have a secure future with Him. Through Jesus we have a secure future with Him. So we don't have to live for this world. This world offers us nothing. Because we have eternity with Jesus Christ. Verse 7 we already read, but I'll read it again. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see Paul moving to thinking of the future and thinking of, do we need to worry about the future? Is it based on on what I do and don't do? Or is it based on the finished, completed work of Christ? So he says you're not lacking in any gift for how you live now as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know, that that's actually a little hint to what he's going to cover a little bit later as well, that he's given the church gifting and those will last until the return of Christ. Because then we won't need to exercise these gifts except for love, Paul says. Because we'll be with Christ. But verse 8 is just a wonderful picture who will sustain you to the end. Sometimes we can live in fear. What if I walk away from God? What if I sin in a way that's going to make God hate me today? Or take away my salvation? What the Bible teaches is that it's not up to us. It's up to the strength of God. And that word for sustain there means to strengthen or enable. And it's saying that Jesus Christ, through His work, strengthens us, enables us, to stay true to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And guiltless there is the idea of blameless. It doesn't mean we've never done anything wrong, but because of the blood of Christ and the work of Christ that has paid for those debts, there is nothing that can be held against us. Because if the accuser tries, Jesus says, that's paid in full. I took care of that on the cross. Go away. And so because of Christ, he strengthens us and sustains us to the end, to his coming, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Amen? He will do what He says. By whom you were called into the fellowship or the partnership, into the community of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's message here is we're partners with Christ in everything. He has called us to be different He has given us grace so we don't have to earn it. He has given us gifts and richly enabled us with the the strength to live godly lives. We have a future that is secure in Him. We are in Christ. And that's an important message to the church at Corinth because every stink of the world that they were holding on to, they were now dragging Christ through and their relationship with Christ through. He's saying, no, that is not who you are. You are different in all the right ways. My prayer for us is we we grab hold of that and realize we are different because of the work of Christ, because of the gifts of Christ. This passage, with how many times it talks about Christ Jesus, we should go out that door thinking, Jesus is amazing. He is incredible. He saved me. He has equipped me. He sustains me. That's the God we serve. As we come to communion this morning, that's the purpose of communion, is to remember the work of Christ. To remember that by His grace, He saves us. That by His strength, He sustains us. That by His equipping, He gives us everything we need to live a godly life. There are no excuses. By His love and grace, He draws us into relationship with Him. So we want to end end our our time in, in this passage remembering Christ, honoring Him. This is a time that is for believers, for those that have repented of their sins, that are right with God this morning. If you're not right with God this morning, it's okay to just pass the elements by. But if you want to be right with God this morning, it takes a moment. It takes just bowing our heads and saying, God, I'm a sinner. I repent. And I want to live for you. That's all it takes because of His work on the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray right now that if there's anything that is holding us back, if there's any Corinth in our lives, that you would be dealing with that because there's no room for Corinth when we're in Christ. Lord, thank you for your work on the cross that has saved us even while we were still sinners. Something we could never accomplish. Thank you for the gifts you give us and the rich blessings you give us to be able to live for you. Thank you for changing who we are. As we take this morning, we remember that by your blood we are now called saints. Help us to take that seriously, but also joyously. In your name, amen.